the thing that will have the greatest impact on you in terms of who you become and what you can accomplish and what you choose to do in life will be the people. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, yesterday when we were preparing to record this podcast, I mentioned that January is National Mentoring Month. And I, I appreciate your your feedback, which is there's a national month for a hundred different things for the month of January. And that's probably true. Probably true. Yeah. <laughs> but I liked this particular theme for the month of January because... That's kind of what we're about here at IEW, modeling and mentoring. We want to help people be successful. And so we have tools and a technique to be able to help their students learn to write. Okay. But this goes back even deeper. And I was thinking about your story and how you came to be the founder and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing. And a lot of that story has to do with mentors. So tell us about some of the mentors that you had growing up. Well, growing up, <laughs> I don't. I don't know that I would think back that far. Sure. Did you have teachers though in school? That I, any memorable teachers? Yes, I have one memorable teacher. Good. Mr. Grantham was the middle school orchestra oh. teacher. He also taught band, but nobody cares about band <laughs> because they don't have string instruments. Oh, so. that's right. You were a violin player. Yeah. Yep. But the thing I remember mostly is that he had an endless supply of pencils. Hmm. And if you were not looking at him when he looked at you, he would throw a pencil at you. <laughs> okay. And I, I don't think this would do well in today's educational environment. Probably not. But it was interesting because all it took was a couple pencil throws at the beginning of the year. And he had pretty much everyone just locked in, attentive to him, every class, every rehearsal, every performance. So he had some kind of knack there. He was also humorous, and I have always appreciated humor in teaching. And definitely he was the most significant teacher of the very few that I even remember from mm -hmm. school. But you know, I think mentors, for me, that's more of an adult thing. Mm -hmm. That's when you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, mm -hmm. and you're all grown up, and it's voluntary relationship. Right? You go to school, you get who you get. You don't really have much choice about teachers, and you know that it's a very temporary relationship because when the semester of the year is over, you know, you don't, you probably won't say, although Mr. Grantham Three years, 3 sixth, years, 7th, and 8th grade. Nice. Probably, 
probably more than any other teacher. Hmm. Maybe that's why I remember him. I have a special teacher that I had in high school, Mrs. Mark. And you know Mrs. Mark because a lot of her sayings creep into my vocabulary even today. Hard work is immensely satisfying. That is one of them. And another one is good enough Enough isn't. isn't. Yep, that was Mrs. Mark. And yes, I, I did choose to have her as a teacher. You know, at first you're kind of stuck with who you get. But then I went back and took a creative writing class from her. And so she was an English teacher. Oh. And so in some ways... I would consider her one of my mentors, even though I wasn't an adult. I was certainly practicing to be an adult in high school. So, mm. Well, I would, you know, think of great people mm-hmm. that I have had a chance to have a relationship with. Mm-hmm. The first would be Dr. Shinichi Suzuki mm-hmm. of Suzuki Method. And when I went over to go to school there in Japan, I didn't really know what to expect, but it was... Very interesting how he had all of these teacher trainees. And I mean, we're all, I don't know, the youngest were 18, 19. I was 21 when I got there, I think. There were older people, Mm -hmm. 30, some 40 maybe. But he managed to have this incredible ability to connect with each person in exactly the way they needed to be connected with. Wow. He would say something to you. And you would know that he said that very specifically for you at that moment, almost a, almost like a, a spiritual kind of thing, like he had some kind of supernatural insight into mm. what you were going through or your personality. And so I think of a mentor as someone you'd work more closely with, kind of side by side. But to that degree, you know, the very valuable but small amounts of time that I had with him were Mm -hmm. quite noteworthy. Mm -hmm. And again, he loved to laugh and he loved to play with children. And he would, you know, he was 83 years old when I got there. And he would get on the stage and do all these antics, dancing and sitting down on the floor and teasing children and making them all smile and somehow then just getting the best out of them. I loved watching him interact with children. And I think to a very high degree that influenced my style Mm -hmm. of interacting with children. Sure. Probably more than anything else. Mm. I left Japan. I went to Philadelphia and worked for the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential. And there I had several, several people that were very formative in my understanding of humans and brains and children and people and teaching and learning and doing. First would be the the founder of the Institutes, Glenn Doman. He was still working all the time. He was at every single staff meeting. He was in the clinic. He was a truly great, great man who inspired just countless people. And again, he was very jovial. Mm -hmm. You know, he was kind of toward the end of his active working life when I was there. And his daughter, Janet, was the director of the Institute, but he was still the chairman of the board. And he always had a cheerful word and a positive thing to say. And boy, did he understand the brain and children. And I think he would have been fascinated to have access to all the research that has just come out in the last decade. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we thought we knew a lot back in the 80s or 90s. 
but huge, huge breakthroughs in understanding neurological function, neuroplasticity. A lot of the things that he knew and claimed and taught were supported by what you might call really good logic based on the science at the time. And now we know from much harder science, much clearer uh, data, that those things were very true. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of uh, also being like in the presence of, of someone who knew, knew things. Mm -hmm. It was a rough row for him because the, the kind of medical establishment of the day did not look at fixing brain injury kids. They looked at accommodations and treating. And he was saying, no, we can, we can actually change the brain. Mm -hmm. And so he was scoffed at by many in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. He also brought his experience in the military. Yeah, he was, um, I don't remember his rank, pretty high, lieutenant colonel, colonel maybe. But he had this organizational and motivational aptitude from being a, you know, a leader in the army. And that came through in the whole structure of the organization. Mm. And there were many other people. Then, of course, I left Philadelphia, went to Montana, and that's where I met the... Uh, Canadian woman who said, let's all go and take this course called the Blended Soundsite Program of Learning in Northern Alberta this summer. And so all the teachers at the school I was working with went up and that's when I met Dr. Webster for mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. His humor was much more, what you call it, wry and dry. And, yes. <laughs> but, but behind his stern visage, he always did have this kind of playing with you way of interacting. And of course, I spent probably more time with him than anyone and was profoundly grateful when he kind of took me close and said, okay, here's how you really do this stuff. If mm -hmm. you're going to go teach it to people, you better really know what you're doing. Right, so, right. So those are the, the three most important people in my adult life, I right. would say. Yeah. And with Dr. Webster, of course, you still correspond with him. You still visit him. In fact, you brought some student papers from the Structure and Style for Students classes and asked Dr. Webster to look at them. And it was kind of a delight to, of course, we don't show this in the video, but when you pass the papers back to the students, you said, Dr. Webster, mark these mark up. These, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were a little intimidated by that. But I think overall, he is pleased with you, Andrew. I, all that we've done. I think so. Yeah. You know, I certainly have done a few things that were either irritating or enigmatic to him. But, <laughs> you know, it, it is interesting because just being a teacher is a little bit different than having a business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a long time, I kind of just wanted to just be a teacher. Mm -hmm. But then it got bigger and bigger. And so then you kind of have to bring in someone like Julie Walker, who knows how to <laughs> do business stuff. <laughs> well, and of course, you know, I could name all my mentors, but probably, I think, I think the thing that you have also talked about before in terms of a mentor, or at least influence, is the books we read. So yeah. can you speak to that for a little bit about the books we read and how that can help shape who we are? I have done from time to time uh, commencement address mm -hmm. for homeschoolers various times. And 
one of the things I like to point out is that the, the thing that will have the greatest impact on you in terms of who you become and what you can accomplish and what you choose to do in life will be the people. And there's two types of people, living and dead, <laughs> right? And so the living people you choose to spend time with mm -hmm. are the ones that are going to nourish your soul and challenge you and bring ideas up and relationships are messy, but that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. The other kind of people are the dead ones. Well, how do you have a relationship with a dead person? Well, you read their books. Mm -hmm. And we know because books have been around for such a long time and read by so many, you know, millions, billions of people that there really are some books that are clearly just great. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no other word. And when you read a book, a great book that was created by a great person, it gets you in direct contact with that person's great mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I am currently rereading Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. And the first time I read it, I had no life experience. I thought it was boring and it was a hard to read Russian novel and I forgot about it. Then the second time I read it, which was probably seven years ago, I thought this is the best novel that has ever been written because I had more life experience. Mm, mm -hmm. And now I'm listening to it again and I'm realizing it's not at all about the plot. Hmm. The, the power of Tolstoy is in the moments of truth that surface in the dialogue and the interaction between the characters. The plot is, you know, just the means to deliver the power of the the truth that's embedded in the book. And so you, I hear it more and more carefully. It's funny, I had this girl, she wrote me a teasingly nasty letter about hmm. me on the video giving away the end of books. Oh, it's true, Andrew. That is hard. I, you know, I understand Somehow that. I'm yeah. a, you know, spoiler. And yes. she, oh, she raked me. She's probably, I don't know, 14, 15. Sure. And she used every little bit of elocutive power she had to criticize, condemn, and make me feel horribly guilty. <laughs> and of course, I wrote back unapologetically. Mm. But it's interesting because when you know the end of the book, mm -hmm. then you can read the book at a different level. Right. The first time you're trying to get to the end, find out what happens. Yes. Once you already know that, then it's almost like you can pay attention better. I, I would liken it to taking a trip. Mm. You know, if you don't know where you're going, you're always looking, okay, can't miss the roads, got to keep track of where I am and what's the time and how come. But when you know where you're going, well, you don't have to worry about that stuff and you can look at the beautiful scenery along the way. And so that's a little off track of mentoring, but I do think we, we can learn a tremendous amount from mm -hmm. both the people we meet and the books that mm -hmm. we read. By the way, do you know where the word mentor comes from? No, do tell. So mentor is the name of one of the characters in the Odyssey. Yes, and actually, as you're saying that, Andrew, I am absolutely know exactly where it came from. So Odysseus, you know, he went off to fight the Trojan War, and he was gone for a long, long mm -hmm. time. And then the war was over, and he was going to head back to Ithaca, 
where his virtuous and faithful wife Penelope, Penelope. was mm -hmm. waiting for him. But he got distracted and waylaid by many sorts of, you know, weird creatures and temptations mm -hmm. and disasters along the way. So it took him even longer to get back. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, his <laughs> little son mm -hmm. was born, Telemachus or Telemachus, or however you want to say it. And Penelope is believing Odysseus is still alive and will come home. But there's all these kind of suitors mm -hmm. who say, no, he's been gone so long, he's dead. You have to marry one of us, so you got to choose one of us. So they just hang out at her house, eating her stuff and taking advantage of their situation. She's trying to say, no, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. She pulls some pretty clever yep. plans, like she's going to... Knit the burial cloth. Knit the burial cloth or weave it. Mm -hmm. And so she weaves or knits during the day and then she undoes it at mm -hmm, night so mm -hmm. that it's going even slower. But Mentor is the character who was Telemachus's tutor. Ah, uh -huh. He was kind of in charge of helping Telemachus grow up and know how to speak and what to do. And that's interesting. Because when you think of how to speak, that translates as how to think. What to do would be standards of behavior, decorum, propriety. He's preparing a future prince or king of Ithaca. Mm -hmm. And so that job is a pretty serious one. And then, of course, Odysseus does come back, meets mentor in disguise. They go over and it's a bloodbath at the end, which you know all the boys really like. Well, yes. One of my favorite scenes, though, from the movie. Wait, I don't know if it's in any movie, but it's in my mind. Oh, the movie of your mind of the book that you yes, read. Yes, yes. Is when he shoots an arrow through, is it 12 axes? Axe heads, yeah. Yes, and that's how they know it's actually Odysseus. Odysseus, yeah. yeah I, I, I love that. In fact, that's, yeah. And that. then he proceeds to shoot arrows through all of those suitors. Right. So I do, I do want you to speak on a perhaps you're not thinking of this young man as a mentor, but I know, especially recently, he has influenced your life profoundly. And that would be your son. Oh, yeah. So talk about Chris and that journey that he has brought you on, because I think in that way, maybe he's not older and wiser in all things in life, but he certainly has taken you on a journey that has changed your life. Yeah, I think it does show that whatever age you are, you do have something to offer. And sometimes that can be very significant. Mm -hmm. you know? So, well, through various steps, which I will not elaborate on, I was, I, I tricked myself into agreeing to go to the gym and let him be my personal trainer, mostly to kind of motivate him. Yes, but it helps that he's your son, so yeah. you love him and have a relationship. And, with him. Uh, oh, man, did I hate that so bad. Those first months at the gym were just, I dreaded it, absolutely dreaded it. But he's really a very good teacher, and he's very patient. He explains things well. He sets an appropriate level of challenge, and, you know, is very encouraging. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, I really enjoyed being at the gym and watching him train someone else. Oh, interesting. Because then I could see all of those, you know, powerfully positive traits that he brought to the work 
that he was doing. So yeah, it got me going on a path of wanting to learn a whole lot more about you know, longevity, muscle physiology, the whole art, if you will, the sport. I wouldn't really call it a sport myself, but the practice of improving your, you know, your body mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. diet and exercise and proper care. So I am profoundly grateful for him. And I've told him that many times because, you know, I, I would like to live long enough to be able to swim, play chess, and wrestle with great-grandchildren. Ah, uh, yes. But, you know, <laughs> I'm going to have to stick around for a while to be able to do that. Right. Another thing that we were talking about before we turned on the mics is that this 2024 is leap year, which means we all have an extra day to do something. <laughs> well, I, I think most people are going to spend their extra day whining about the outcome of the election. That's why you get the election year and the leap year at the same time. Oh, interesting. Because I would challenge that, Andrew Poudoir. <laughs> but you know, that's our relationship, right? Well, okay. Only half the people are going to whine about the election. <laughs> the other half may be, you know, less unhappy. That's That could be true. But I, I like this idea of a three-pronged approach. So here's the challenge, listeners, for you with that extra day that you have this year. And that is find a mentor, someone maybe older than you or wiser than you in a certain area that can help you accomplish something. Find a mentor. The second thing would be to become a mentor, to find someone that you can mentor and help them grow in a certain area that may be your expertise. And then the third area would be find a peer that can support you right where you are. So higher, lower, and same level. And that's three different relationships. And I think in all three of those, you can find support and accountability in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do if you were just only doing one of them. But I do know, and Andrew, you talk about this in, there's an article you wrote about the value of mixed age classrooms Mm -hmm. and how there's, there's, and I think that kind of brings that in a practical way, but as an adult. So can you just spend a couple minutes talking about the benefits of a mixed age classroom? I I don't speak from a huge amount of personal experience. Mm I, the first teaching job I had was a grade 7-8 combination classroom, but that's because the school was very small. Mm-hmm. What I do have is a lot of stories of Webster teaching in a one-room schoolhouse right? and doing some reading about the history of education and how one-room schoolhouses were kind of a, a community of learners that was designed for everyone to be helping each other. So Webster explained that his first teaching job, he wasn't even 18 years old. He was 17, Mm -hmm. it was the end of World War II. There was a shortage of teachers and men in particular. And so they ran him through a six week summer teacher training course, sent him out to a small town in Saskatchewan and said, you're the teacher of the school, the school, the one school. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And 
he, you know, I, I don't know how much of this is precise from his memory or even from my memory, but as I remember him telling me, he had 46 students in a one-room schoolhouse, no electricity. The youngest was six. The oldest was 16. Several of the young children were European refugees mm. and didn't speak English very much. He had to rotate living with families in this village. So he didn't really even have his own wow. permanent room in a mm -hmm. house or, or a house. And when it was dark, which was a lot of the school year <laughs> in Saskatchewan, you know, he, he'd come in, the kids would make the fire, and he would stand by the window and just read to them by moonlight until it was light enough for them to start doing their own work. And they would cook their own lunch. Usually one family would bring lunch each day, so it would rotate around and they would cook it up and serve it to everybody. And he said, you know, in retrospect, it was one of the easiest teaching jobs he's ever had because if someone had a problem, they wouldn't pester him. It was part of the culture. So if a grade five student had a problem, didn't know how to do something or not sure, it would go straight over to a grade seven or eight student and ask that student. Mm -hmm. And then that student would be explaining the math or helping understand the concept or whatever they were doing, figure out. And then if a grade eight student had a problem, they go to the older students, of which there were only a few. And that, you know, that 16-year-old girl was kind of like his assistant in this classroom because they weren't even two years apart. Right. And he said it was pretty easy because you would just administer the curriculum and everybody would be working independently and knowing what to do. And if they had any problems, then they would help each other. He did that for two years. The war ended, and then they said, well, you actually aren't qualified to be a teacher. You need to go get a credential. So he went to a two-year university program, and then he taught fifth grade in Vancouver City. He said this is the worst teaching job he ever had mm. because all the kids are the same age, and if one of them didn't understand something, they pretty much lots of them didn't understand and they're all pestering him all the time and they couldn't help each other. And so what he did was the first thing he did was he set up a system, particularly for the writing stuff and said, you know, if you have a question, you go to this person. If that person can't help you, you go to the next person. If that person can't help you, you go to this. And if she can't help you, then and only then come to me. <laughs> so he set up kind of an artificial system based mm -hmm. on you know, probably natural aptitude and a little mm -hmm. bit of, you know, academic rigor, discipline that they had. Yep. But he, he always said it was much easier to do that when you had a widely mixed range of ages in yep. the classroom. And yep. I've talked to other teachers who've taught in one-room schools. I've talked to people running cottage schools that'll usually do three or maybe four grade levels mm -hmm. in one group. And, you know, I think part of that isn't to make the teacher's life easier, but to give leadership opportunities yes, exactly. to the older students yes. who are now responsible for helping and coaching and being kind yep. to younger students. So I often say I don't know that we can 
fix educational institutional problems very well when we insist on segregating children by age mm -hmm. because it's an unnatural condition and it really kind of prevents that mentor-mentee relationship yep. from, from coming into existence. Yep. I love that way that Dr. Webster did to work around that. And I know that happened in that Mrs. Mark's English class. You know, there were people that were assigned different levels of responsibility. And I think that's super helpful. It does make me think about being a mentor and the responsibility that you have. That in and of itself is accountability. <laughs> because now you've got someone coming to you and saying, I need help with this. And yet you don't want to be a hypocrite. You want to be able to help them honestly. And so I think all of those things. Well, and it forces together. you to give up things like selfishness and, mm -hmm. you know, having a pity party or wanting, you know, to do your own thing. No, there's yep. people who need you. Right. And I think most people live long enough realize that this is the way society is structured. Yes. That we need each other. Yes. And that is a good thing. Yes. And when we experience that at a younger age, either a bigger family or, you know, a school type situation where you have responsibility and you have older people that you can learn from, it sets you up, I think, better for success in life. Yep. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing, would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.